And welcome to the podcast. My name is Chris Hall. This is the NDIS Peak Provider Podcast, and I am honoured today to have Jen Morgan with me. Now, Jen is the CEO of Next Group, and Next Group are one of the top 25 providers in Australia. Um, they're actually a member of an organisation called Alliance 20, uh, which collectively, along with the other 25 um, providers in Australia, collectively bill 4.1 billion annually in terms of NDIS support. So it's always a pleasure to have people like Jen on the podcast to get the insight um, as to how you run a business of that size, how you grow, how you scale, what culture, philosophy looks like, the whole shebang. So Jen, welcome to the podcast. It's going to be great to have a chat today. Thanks, Chris. Absolutely delighted to talk about what we do. I'm very excited to share yeah, uh, what's happening for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, so Jen, I had, a, I had a look, I checked you out on LinkedIn and I had a look at your CV <laughs> and I was really interested because I can see that you've got a, a very rich tapestry of a background. You, you span psychology, specialisms in CBT, autism, mindfulness. Um, you've done this, you worked in disability services in both the UK, Australia, but what's also interesting is you've spanned government, a variety of government departments as well as organizations um, and also the justice system. So you kind of, you know, lived in, in various realms. And of course, there's overlap um, with all of those. Um, and then when it comes to uh, Next Group in particular, um, you know, you, you rose quickly through the ranks there, covering a variety of roles. And now the CEO since May uh, this year, I believe. Um, I'm quite fascinated with that rich tapestry of experience What's your flavour and style as a CEO? Oh, it's um, it's quite kind of confronting when you hear yourself being uh, mirrored back. Um, I think what you did miss in there, though, is I started as a support worker in this industry. Okay. So, yeah, I went on to be registered psychologist, I did director of allied health, I did all of those things. But my first interaction in this sector and the sector I've kind of grown up in, really, was starting as a support worker working um, up in Fife in Scotland. Um with Scottish autism. So I think what um, all of that has taught me is to just have a really broad perspective. I've learned a lot from people with disability and their families. And what I've always learned throughout those roles is people really are the experts in who they are and what they want to be and how they want to be supported. And our job is to listen and listen, um, bring our expertise to the table, but obviously offer the sounding board in your experience, but they should be the lead person in the room talking about self-determination, what we should be delivering for them. So I think what's great as I've um, worked in all of those and it's quite complex and confronting situations is that you really you have a deep respect for the support workers. They have mm -hmm. to wear multiple hats and multiple skills. You have to make sure that they stay calm and kind um, in those spaces with people and you act based on facts and based on what that person with disability is asking from you. And I've always had a call out the good, celebrate success no matter how small um, and make sure that you're operating from one set of notes, that everybody is listening to that person and whoever's supporting with their decisions, that you're all working on a cohesive plan together and that people are being respected and engaged through that conversation and empowered. And for me, as I've kind of moved through my career, it's just doing that at a bigger scale, a bigger scale, a bigger scale, a bigger scale, but keeping that person with disability at the center of all of that really going. As a CEO, I'm at the bottom of the organization. The people with disability are the top. Mm -hmm. They are the people who um, expect and deserve great quality services from us. So everything that I do 
as I work with my teams is about where's the client's voice in this? Are we listening to them? Are we running a set of processes because it meets our functions and our needs, a finance process, a building process, et cetera? What does it actually feel like from the client's perspective? How are we building that? So it's truly looking at those moments of truth for them um, so that we are nice people to deal with, particularly as uh, things continue to become a bit more stressed in the sector. I hear a lot of CEOs talking about the difficulties their organizations are facing and my response back into my teams if it's hard for us imagine what it's like to be a person with disability who again is in an uncertain environment a family member wondering about the sustainability of a provider they've had for 15 20 years and all these mergers and acquisitions like that's a confronting space so for me it's about stay calm stay kind get your facts listen to the person with disability and make your decisions based on that love that love that and um that's that that grounds to values and the philosophy of how it should be done um and even just from a marketing point of view um there's a guy called seth godin and he talks here one of his famous books was called the purple cow and he talks about being remarkable and so i think that you know as you alluded to there if you just concentrate on the core of doing great service delivery um, and client center support then that is what ultimately leads to being remarked about you know remarked well about you know if, if people talk well of you in private when you're not there then you know you're doing a good job 100 percent, 100 percent. i think that what we really did well through our kind of covid experiences that can cause organizations to crack and we took mm. that now we stay calm we stay kind we pull together everybody keeps their job every client gets a service and we've been even eligible for any of the job keeper stuff that was floating around because we just kept on that core of make sure the clients get the right workers doing the right things and that's what our whole organization is about so um yeah it's it's a really positive and enjoyable place to work which is um something i'm really really proud of we have great people doing great things absolutely now i believe that um you've implemented recently a big operational model change over the last uh, year and you're starting to see some results for that can you just tell us a little bit about that and what you're seeing um you know different in the business as a result yeah i've had the privilege to work within this organization for four and a half maybe five years now and what i love about it is we're not afraid of change because we want mm-hmm. to do something better and iterate all the time and after um COVID, we took that as a kind of a watershed moment. There was a lot of workforce challenges around February, March last year. And we were looking around at the kind of macro environment, the rhetoric that Mr. Shorten was talking about not being the only life raft in the ocean. We're looking at the Royal Commission. We were looking at um, all of the reviews that are happening around the NDS. And we're thinking, okay, what does the sector look like in three years from now? And then what does the next look like as a result of that? So we took the time. and it was, uh, you know, three to six months, I would say, a really careful analysis of the macro environment, our internal environment, what have we learned, were our strengths and weaknesses through um, through all of the stress that was on the sector, where were the opportunities for us, and then obviously what were the threats to that. And we took a very big decision um, to basically restructure the entire organization. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> And we're still on that journey. So we've done the, I would say, the lion's share of it. But mm-hmm. really, it was getting back to that core message. And we have three pillars in our strategy. It is client experience first, mm-hmm. employee experience um, to support that, because we know good employees deliver great outcomes for 
people with disability. And the third was sustainable growth. So let's not just go on an aggressive growth strategy, right. but let's decide what are we really good at? Um, mm. Where do we do that well? And let's do more of that. So do more good for more people, basically. Mm. Um, so we went through that change. We made sure that um, everything we were doing took a people process systems place because what we wanted to do is make people's jobs easier and get the systems and technology to step up to the plate mm-hmm. and do the manual repeatable stuff so our people could have the complex interactions, the meaningful engagements, the, the things that people do better than robots and technology. Let's get the robots and technology to do their bit. Mm-hmm. So we took measures. Yep. So we looked at... Um, support worker engagement, client engagement, satisfaction, retention rates, overtime. We took a whole host of organizational KPIs, built our strategy, <laughs> built uh, localized business unit plans, retrained all of our staff, reskilled our staff, um, invested in leadership programs through Deakin University have been amazing. So retraining all of our managers on our core values and our um, strategic objectives and their role in that and made them very active participants in that learning. And we're starting to see shifts to the positive in all the things that we want to be good at. So we have increased support worker engagement and belonging. We have increased client retention. We have increased client satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Every client in our organization has a goal that is tracked through a central system. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we want to do is turn around to our funding bodies which mm-hmm. we have several, and say, hey, when someone comes to next, their lives get better in measurable ways, and here's how, yes. and here's the data at an aggregate, at an individual, at a funding level, at a service type level, um, to say, you know, they give us money, we should be demonstrating outcomes for people, whatever those outcomes are that are meaningful for that individual. So, Wow. It's exciting. It. That is really exciting, and that's so smart because any other industry – the businesses that work well demonstrate, should we say, the dream outcome and progression towards the outcome in objective, measurable ways, right? Because anyone would say, can you can you give me a case study? Can you give me a proof that, you know, what another customer achieved by using your services? You've got to treat it professionally. And I, and that's the kind of the spirit of what I do too, because I, I do the sales and marketing side of stuff. And I, and, I, yeah. and I bring that, not corporate energy, but professional energy to, like, it's okay to say, here's a target. Let's talk about, you know, I see, for example, money as oxygen, and then that allows you to do a good service, you know, and you do it in the right ethical way with the right values, then it, there's, there's nothing, it's not a dirty word, so to speak, you know, you've got, you, yes, yeah, so you've got to be able to look at that. But um, I, gosh, I really love that, um, that measurable thing. So it's kind of like a, you, you did, you did a, sound like you did a very in-depth SWOT analysis and then put everything on steroids in terms of where you are and where you want to get to. Um, we did yeah. put everything up there and then we decided what, were the key things to do because yes. I think it's very dangerous to try and do everything <clears throat> um what we use those design principles around what do our clients want from us and what do our employees deserve from us mm-hmm. um and they were kind of the guiding principles of right we could do all of these things and they're all lovely and beautiful and everything but these are the things that matter to the people that matter to us so it's um yeah it was a great we're all very focused and leaned in which is wonderful it's been a great way to galvanize your organization after a period of stress and change absolutely and and i I think what i hear is a resounding culture of constructive um positive attitude and that is also an attitude that embraces change because um you know whenever i'm doing the projects that i do like it's often that say for example you've got a new system um you'll often get um resistance saying i'm used to doing it this way 
Um, you know, I experience that all the time. Let's say you put a new phone system and it's all in the cloud and it's amazing. It does all these functions and it's like, oh, wow, your life could be amazing. And then you get complaints about like, oh, no, but I like doing it my way. And you go, but it's got all these restrictions. Like, you know, so I think that really does come down to the culture of the employees in the organization. Um, and what I love about hearing this story is that um, if you think about what it's doing is it's kind of refusing to take on board any energy of uh, pessimism and cynicism. And because if you speak to maybe other providers or whatever, they might go, oh, you know, oh, you know, you just can't keep the support workers and oh, you can't get good staff. Like you'll you'll hear all the can'ts, so to speak. Right. So if you actually just tackle that, I can see that you've actually you know, you are, you're tackling that um, by, yeah. by, you know, weeding things out and also addressing root causes by the sounds of things. Oh, 100%. It's a psychologist. It's my clinical background. Um, ah. You don't just respond or react to the primary behavior. You go, what's underneath that? So if somebody isn't motivated or if they are cynical, well, you've not talked to them properly yep. <laughs> because you haven't tapped into what's motivating this person why is there resistance to change and how do I recognize that that's a real human feeling and people if one person feels that they're the one talking you may have 10 20 out there so mm. it's about saying it's safe to have that conversation it's safe for you to not be okay with change let's talk it through benefits risks what does it mean for you in your role what does it mean for our clients mm-hmm. um and tapping into that because I think if you get good values-based recruitment, you can teach skills. So if you bring in, you know, smart people with good values, you can teach skills to them and, and recognize that everybody's going to be on a different part of that change cycle at different points. Mm. And in terms of your core, so to speak, of what, you know, you said we, we recognize what we're good at. What were some of the strands of things that you realized we need to focus on uh, these aspects? We've got really good understanding of complex needs. And I know lots of people say that, but I think when you've got an executive team that half of them have previously worked as allied health or social work, um, they do genuinely get what it is to sit in with a person with disability and their family being the 25th provider in that person's life and sit and go, okay, let's get this all down and let's do it right. Um, And we have built our systems and processes and training around getting it right. So if the practice standard says this, we do that and we do it well um, and we build our system to provide that. So uh, like, it's interesting. I was, I got two good news stories last night. I asked my team every week for good news stories and (laughs) Benson gave me um, two and he said, well, this gentleman here has moved into his own home for the first time in his life and now he's able to get a puppy. And this guy's learning to fly. <laughs> wow. And, it was kind of, and they're, but they're both meaningful and incredible outcomes yeah. for both of them. Like they're both equal because they mean so much to those individuals. So for us, it's about we sit, we listen, we learn, we make sure we do it right. And we focus on um, positive outcomes for people, no matter what their circumstances. So another example of that, we've had a 25% reduction in use of restrictive practices for all the participants and subject oh, to wow. them, which is huge. Um, and that's concerted effort from doing it well. Yep. And within the remaining people who have restricted practice in their life, and I fully support the position of zero tolerance in this in that space and uh, the Royal Commission's report and findings, um, we've had a 15% reduction in the current clients. So we're continuously saying it's not too hard. Let's go. What do we need to do? Is it skills? Is it participation? Is it engagement? Let's keep going and not just sit with the status quo of, 
yeah, this is really hard. Uh, it's bringing that mentality of mm. things can improve all the time into our clients' lives, not just mm. into how we run our organization. Absolutely. And that, and that does, hats off to you, that really does take an, a deep understanding of complex needs and training of the staff because, you know, looking yeah. at behavior support plans and things like that, like we had a participant that when I was a director of a place um, that, you know, would swallow batteries, right? And so that was an example of, gosh, if she did that ever again, it could be literally that she'd lose her life because of, you know, she'd had operations as a result of that. So, you know, if you can, I, I'm not saying I know the solution to that, but all I'm saying is that if there are certain things in place that you can literally be moving away from the usage of, that 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 can only be done with the whole team having a very nuanced understanding. Yeah, and that's, I think, what we talked about a little bit earlier, right? Having that, being on the ground, being a support worker, then being the clinician in the difficult space, then being the person who's interacting with youth justice system or people who swallow batteries or yep. all kinds of things, or running an organization, it's okay. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? What do we know? Who do we need to talk to? Mm-hmm. How do we solve for this? What assessments do we need? What background do we need? What observations do we need to have on this? Who are the experts we need to pull in? What are the possible solutions to this problem, no matter whether it's your FY24 budget or it's this person has a really complex life mm-hmm. um, and then what are the risks of those and then how do you implement the plan measure it make sure it happens in the right way yeah. so it's yeah for me good clinical thinking or um, that kind of critical analysis skills are key to understanding everything and making sure everybody's heard to get the right outcome fantastic um I, I, I did notice on your website you do a fantastic job of showcasing um, these good news stories and, and case studies and you are I saw like a, a impressive amount of video you know where, it's, where you have the participants demonstrating their outcomes right um, just out of interest does the organization take a particular creative approach uh, when it comes to generating those video-based case studies and testimonials I think for us um, the reason we use video is because I can sit here and be as charming and my lovely accent as I like Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's all just ultimately where it's if you're empowering the people who mm. you support to talk for themselves and to be proud of their achievements like that's that's our ambassadors that's next I'm not next our clients are next and our support workers are next so really it's about showing um, mm. uh, and providing opportunities for people to celebrate success mm. um, so from a creative perspective it is literally a you know mm call out to everybody every week as I do to say hey tell me some good things that happened this week and I do usually get a flurry in which is absolutely lovely <laughs> um, because as a CEO you know obviously the things that float to the top quickly are not mm-hmm. the positive things sometimes so <laughs> yeah. um yeah it's a uh, I don't know if I answer that question but it's very organic because it's people. I love that I love that it's, it's yeah it sounds like there's again that links to culture yeah you want that yeah communication around about all the success stories um when i do marketing strats for people i put together a marketing calendar and i'll say here's 52 weeks ahead of your content it's like you know your two three four posts a week that you've got to do and what i do increasingly is i focus on headlines subheadlines and like creative intentions and i and i make it about the participant as much as we can right so so we have the participant in the creative uh, wherever possible yeah. Um, you definitely yes. do need a mix of, you know, some things are like, hey, we're a provider, this is our knowledge, here's some useful inf- information from us. You've got to blend it. But I do think that you just said it perfectly, like, who are we almost as professionals? We don't matter. What actually matters is seeing the the outcome 
um, yeah, for the people with disability, basically. 100%. That's why we're here. Yeah. Um, mm, interesting. Okay. All right. Now, I'd love to segue into some of the other non-NDIS things you do, because um, it's quite interesting to me. A lot of providers don't know about the other funding models. So if I just zoom in for a second to iCare, um, in New South Wales. So that's, uh, for those of you who don't know, that's the worker comp thing. And by the way, if you're a provider and you don't have that in your New South Wales, you have to, it's a legal obligation. Um, <laughs> um, actually, jokes aside, like, if you don't have it, get it. Um, but if someone has a worker comp accident in whatever industry, whatever accident, it could it could be like a car accident, it could be various things. Um, but iCare has a funding model, I believe, for those that you know have had an accident and can't return to work. Um, can you tell us about that and tell us how does the funding model work? How do you get started with that? How do you even become, you know, linked in as a provider with an organization such as iCare? Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I just want to say I really enjoy working with iCare. They are a smart bunch of people and they've got a great set of resources. So mm -hmm. in terms of service provider engagement, they're a great partner for us. Mm -hmm. uh, we see them as a natural strategic partner in our funding space because uh, the needs of the people accessing and being funded by those services are very similar to our cohort and NDIS who Absolutely. fall under the high intensity physical supports um, umbrella. Um, as you said, it's uh, it's a funding body that does work with people um, through industrial risk or car accidents typically. Mm -hmm. And they, um, for us, we got involved with them. We actually, through an acquisition, purchased a company called Delina in New South Wales, and they had a lot of eye care funding associated with them. The way eye care funding works, um, first from a client's perspective is obviously, um, they have some kind of compensable claim, they go through an assessment process, usually with OTs and nurses, depending on the nature um, and duration of their injury, and then they're compensated to receive allied health, home modifications, technology, and obviously what we do in terms of support staff um, and or case management, depending on the needs of that individual and what we're agreed to provide. It can be limited to, and it's subject to review as to the impact of that disability, so it's just for rehabilitation, or it can be habilitative as well, so ongoing and permanent injury. Where, um, how we, are registered to provide that, they have a panel process. So every three to five years, depending on where things are at, they'll ask for a tender process mm -hmm. uh, and they'll open it to everyone. It's through Tenders New South Wales. You register, you get on there, you fill in all the documents and tell everybody how great you are and then you prove it <laughs> through the associated attachments. Um, and you then select it based on the merits of that application. So. I have a perverse enjoyment of a tender process because I think it's a nice way to back holistically and go, oh, gosh, You're a rare like... person then. Tenders are quite the thing. I also <laughs> I like that. winning. So um, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a dual aspect. There's the bringing your leadership team together to say, you do that bit, you do that bit, you do that bit, you do that bit. Then let's all look at this as a team and what questions would we ask if we were the, the funding body? And then obviously there's a little celebration when you win and everybody affirms how much you are as an organization, which we did, um, confirmed in February. So for anyone who wants to get involved with that, I recommend it. It's an analogous funding stream. There's not much difference in terms of the rates, the client participants, the training needs are the same. The practice standards would probably be the first place if I was thinking about a strategic move for the next tender rounds. 
Um, so you can reach out to um, ASIA, who's the head body, so the Australian Community Industry Authority. They're the certifying body for eye care. Uh, this is where you get into fun when you're working in four different states with four different workers' insurances. <laughs> but for a port of call for you as a provider, reach out to ACA. They will, they're online, very accessible. You can uh, purchase the self-assessment and practice standards and guidelines and benchmarking tool. And it'll just give you a sense of where am I at as an organization and how much work will I have to do to get registered and certified so I can get onto this tender process. Mm-hmm. My learning from that is if you can if you get right re- if you can get registered for the high intensity physical supports in the NDIS standards, mm-hmm. you're a shoe-in because they're very aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit extra. Uh, and what we did as a provider is we've uh, lined up our audit cycles so that uh, we don't have an order coming in to assess for these and an order to assess for these. The order sits in front of us and takes two sets of accreditation standards um, at the same time That's so we smart. can get certified for both. Yeah, they're very similar. We just did an internal mapping process against practice standards. So, um, yeah, it's it's a good, it's it's a nice little, it's a steadier um there's not as much changes as there is with NDIA and the regulation is there, but it's not as burdensome in terms of mm. uh, the NDIA asks and expects, which is really fine. Thank you. That's really insightful. Um, and let me ask the silly question. Um, if someone, you know, unfortunately might have an accident and, and they have a lifetime disability as a result after that, why is it that they get eye care funding and not the NDIS? It depends on the individual circumstance. So if you're eligible for the NDIS, you can get NDIS funding as well, particularly if it's longer term stuff. Uh, we certainly have situations here because there's similar schemes like the LSA in the South Australia, sorry, Lifetime Support Authority, Transport Accident Commission, um, and the NISQ up in Queensland. So they're all uh, insurance schemes that work in this space in which I care. Where we see people transition off of those insurance schemes because they're saying this is no longer resulting um, related to your primary injury or the primary accident, you're now NDIA eligible and people will actually transition off one and go on to the other okay. um, and start getting for that instead. Okay. So the yeah. insurance schemes tend to assess you every year, whereas NDIA, once you're on, you're usually um, a life participant unless um, your skills are such your functional impairment that, that, that explains it yeah again and so like there could be a year of rehabilitation for example and then after that you might become an ndis exactly right we have a right. gentleman who was in aged care we transitioned him out under the transport accident commission um into an interim housing situation through T- transport accident commission and now we're about to transition out to an sda property funded by the ndis right uh so it's walking along the journey with people and explaining all of that to clients mm. and families and people who support them, um, which is fun. Look, and I it's think great. That, it's I, I, on- I can really see how that's one of your strengths, right? Because, you know, I, I noticed even on your website when you got your referral form, it says, are you NDIS funded? Uh, or is it I care in New South Wales? I'll list them off again for people's benefit. You've got li- <laughs> the Lifetime Support Authority, the LSA in South Australia, Queensland's the National Injury Insurance Scheme. And then Victoria has got the Transport Accident Commission, TAC, right? So there's all these different ones, basically, in the states and territories. That's that's the gist of it, right? Um, yeah. And what I'm hearing from you is that, you know, as, as well as passing the tender process, essentially, if you can be doing uh, module one complex care very competently yeah. and things such as SIL and SDA, then you probably do have the right skill sets. 
Yes, absolutely. Um, mm. We very much take a, an individual approach to clients here where we don't, we haven't set ourselves up by funding stream. Mm. We talk about the person um, and it doesn't mm. matter what their funding is because we're working yeah. with them to make sure their needs are met and their goals are achieved. Uh, yes. It's lovely. And all that noise in the background can stay in the background and we'll deal with that. <laughs> yeah, nice. Again, that comes back down to your, <clears throat> the values and the culture um, and the attitude to support um, so with the, with the other ones that I just listed off, you know, outside of New South Wales, um, <clears throat> some of them are explicitly mentioned as motor accident schemes, right? You know, so some of them are a bit more explicit, from my understanding. Um, within that module one complex care thing, you've got you've got a variety of different types of supports. And this might be getting a bit granular, but I'm, I'm interested. Like, are there any particular things that are, um, you know, increasingly relevant when you're going into that that super niche of motor accidents like whether it be I'll, I'll i'll throw a couple out there would would tracheostomy or ventilator management be more relevant for example or, or is it just you don't know everyone's individual circumstances are of course unique there's uh, there's a distribution we very carefully think about when it comes back to what do we do and what do we do well um mm. things like tracheotomy ventilated supports aren't as common okay. so we tend to stay away from tracheotomy that's on our list of we don't do enough of that to do it really, really well. So let's not do it. Um, other organizations, there is provision within, oh, this is very granular, within uh, ACUS, um, which is the eye care standards to do subcutaneous injections. Again, we don't do that because we don't feel that we do enough of it in that scale. Okay. Uh, but we certainly operate right across all of the other high and complex needs that are delineated within that. And we, where we have uh, a density, like lots and lots of people with these needs, we actually train the entire workforce against a minimum standard set of five of those. Okay. So rather than just training one by one by one, we say, okay, this entire workforce, because you're working in, for example, Newcastle, where we've got lots of people with those types of support needs, we give them additional specialized training and competency-based assessments to say that we've got base skill within our workforce, and then it's training additionally to client specific needs nice. uh, within it yeah. yeah and we have in-house nursing that does that for us so it yep. just helps our risk mitigation and uh it was great whenever you have a workforce challenge you've got more people to draw on um that already have increased mm -hmm. skills it's impressive your attitude to training in all the right ways um so like when i was before the ndis i worked in the education sector in e-learning so i'd sell e-learning projects of all things um, yeah. So I learned during that time that, you know, if you talk to, say, a registered training organization in the vet sector, there's always a difference between the learning content that can be online sometimes, not always, but it can be, um, and the assessments. So you mentioned their competency-based assessments. So, like, again, just as a brief insight, I'll give my spiel and then I want to hear how you guys do it. Um, basically, um, I found it quite enlightening for organizations to take a sometimes self-paced e-learning approach rather than having to gather everyone in a room at the same time right so of course there are certain things that you have to learn in person um but um the challenge of rostering when it comes to you know if you do sill or whatever it's almost impossible uh, to get everyone in the same room so if you have a learning management system where you go you've been assigned this course you need to finish it by then pass the quiz show us that that's your step one and then you're coming in on this date to show us that you can you know do an injection or whatever it is like just out of interest what do you what's your approach to education in, in with, the, with that what delineation <laughs> what's that that's what that's, that's what, what we do. do yeah great okay i just said it then 
So we have um, an e-learning uh, learning management. <laughs> Basically, we've got exactly what you said. Um, yes. We uh, we do the e-learnings. Uh, they do the, the test to check the knowledge transfer. And then it's about the practical skills assessment for certain competencies yes. uh, within that practice framework. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we also do... Uh, induction and orientation so we'll do some proficiency checking as well so things that aren't necessarily uh, a competency base that has to be signed mm -hmm. off mm -hmm. but it's more of a, yeah you've shown me that you can actually do that in practice so yeah it's so important I mean I think our support workers are inundated with a variety of content and learning and cert threes and fours etc mm -hmm. that we just check that that hasn't been just clicked through yes. um, and that that person actually can do it in practice and do it safely yes. and respectfully Yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, and, and you've got to have a good educational approach to do that because say if you're a smaller provider and you're listening to this now, don't be intimidated by it because um, basically a, a lot of the time, even on induction, we can get stuck in the idea that it means that someone in the office has to sit with someone for seven hours, right? You don't necessarily have to. If you put your materials of like, this is our organization, this is our culture, this could be a training video right now of Jen introducing you to yeah. the culture of the organization. That's something you can put in a learning management system and it can therefore be done just with that person's time, not the whole office having to, you know, to do it all. Um, but you have the check-ins, you have the quizzes, you check digitally that they're getting it and it can bring not only efficiency to one's own time as a as a provider, um, but it's also a scaling method. Um, and um, on the LMS side of things, um, you've got the national, if I get this right, I think the National Disability Service as a, the NDS as an association, they, I believe, author the content that ends up in an LMS called eTrainU. Um, that's what I understand from them. Um, and, and that is an example of, you don't have to come up with this stuff yourself. You can just sign up to an existing LMS that has the stuff in terms of the modules that you need and you just assign, assign, assign these little mini courses, basically, um, you know. One of the things that um, I'd love to see happening more in our sector is a recognition of prior learning and a professionalization of their, our support workers. They are a profession mm. and should be recognized as such. So mm. um, being able to come and say, I've already done my Cert 3, Cert 4, mm. so I don't need to do another five hours of learning content, which is taking my time for stuff I already know mm. and wasting your time. So looking at how we can recognize prior learning, mm. value and training that in our support workers, create learning pathways into communities to practice. So if you're very interested in certain areas mm. and we create opportunities for you to broaden your skill base, for example, in you wanted to look in um, physical sports or if you wanted to work with people with complex needs and who may have behavior concern in their life like how do we actually go mm -hmm. these are professions and these are pathways so we're working hard on that now with what good looks like at next and i think as a sector it would be great to see training passports so if you've done your content there yes. i'm yes. i know lwb do that great so i'm gonna go great tip because you've done that within the last year and a half, two years, it's got currency and nothing's changed significant in that space. So you're not wasting a support worker's time with another eight hours, mm -hmm. particularly as we know when they work for multiple providers. Mm -hmm. um, that's taking that's taking into their time and not recognizing that they know this stuff already. I agree wholeheartedly with that. And I and and as you say, one of the one of the inspirations that I've thought of in the, in the past because my brain goes this way is wouldn't it be amazing to have a national learning management system yes. federalized um, yes. and what you just described there in terms of training passports you can do that through um, something called micro learning credentialing so where you get these things called badges yes. 
So it's your badge to say, I've, I've done, you know, exactly, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and, but then again, like, if you had, because think about it, like, compare it to the worker screening checks. So you have to go down to Service New South Wales, do your New South Wales yeah. service, New that. you've got your yellow card system in Queensland. You know, if you could just have a federal one that does that, that would be great in itself, bit of a different subject, but you get the idea. Um, but then for LMSs, why not just have a unique user ID that's like a unique student ID um, nationally and, and what you just said you've got but then but then it's like it does two things it's got the transferability and it's also the um what's the way of thinking about it um i think it would lift all boats in the industry because quality control as well quality control yeah exactly yeah because think about like you know what next is doing you're a top 25 one so you're nailing it you're, you're doing a great job but then what about the other 19,000 20,000 providers they don't even know what a learning management system is so if, if you made it national Sorry to rant, but I just get passionate about these things. No, I think I the practice it. standards, I think the practice standards themselves should say, if you're going to have a support worker come in and you reg you are a registered provider, this boom, you do these module. 10 modules, done. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's um, there's so much time seepage and all providers at the moment are crying mm -hmm. out and saying, we can't operate under these. We're all doing the same thing in our own houses. And there's such opportunity to go, hey... Your policy should be the same as your policy should. So can we have one policy and you all do it? Oh, can we have don't even get me started. I feel the same. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> and we can we form cooperatives where we say, hey, we probably all need our systems mm. and technology reviewed. Let's pay one person to tell us all what the best actual one is. Mm. And then we have collective bargaining power to actually get, you know, systems at scale delivered for us. So mm. it's, it's, yeah, it's hard. We're, we're doing a lot. We've made lots of progress. We've got lots more to do. But I feel like Next is in a really, really positive space in terms of our culture systems processes and what we're um, delivering and what our ambition is to deliver as we move forward. Exactly. Let's talk about your growth. So Next, um, is it correct that you relatively recently joined Alliance 20? Um, I, I was looking at that earlier. I think it's two or three years now. It's a relative, um, relative. And, and the reason I say yeah. it's just a contrast is that I believe the organization is 20 years old, right? And so, yes, yes. Um, so like, you know, should we say in 10% of your existence, now you're in the top 25. So um, I'm, I'm sure that there was organic growth along the way. And um, just out of interest, has there been a, a you know particular spurt of growth? And, and if so, what led to that growth to kind of punch into that league? It's been a combination. Um, so we... We made a decision about, I would say, five to six years ago to move away from aged care, which we were providing at the time, and focus solely on disability. And part of our strategy through that was that we did a number of acquisitions over a two to three year period. Uh, so I think we mentioned Delina in New South Wales. We were involved in a transfer here uh, locally in Victoria and in services. And really, uh, they were about us being very judicious in acquiring companies that would add another string to our bow. So Delina gave us that footprint in New South Wales. It gave us highly specialist skills and high intensity physical support, so attending care, whichever way you'd like to, to call that service type. And then in Victoria, we um, we acquired a, a, a company that did more complex needs with people with behavioural concerns. So really we're looking at, we want to operate in three these three areas. So um, supporting people with their mental health, supporting people with complex behavioural concerns, supporting people with complex physical. So we judiciously kind of acquired people uh, and brought them into the fold and learned from them. So how do we do this really well? And how do we then scale that and do it nationally? Mm. Uh, so that 
we have offerings of various service types right across um, where we are and we've gained expertise in that space. In terms of the rest of it was organic growth. So we, you're the sales and marketing guy, but I'm my firm view still is that if you do a good job, people will mm-hmm. talk about you and they'll come back mm-hmm. to you and they'll give mm-hmm. you more of it or they'll tell others about you because it's a messy, cluttered environment for providers right now. So we have a sales and marketing strategy that identifies who are key referral partners, what are the problems that they want solved, and then we solve them quickly for them and we come back and we tell them what a great job is happening because that person's life is now better as a result of that engagement. So we keep that going um, and we've also got some national aggregator relationships for um, from that zero to 100 space. So really our growth is driven by judicious acquisitions to increase our skill and footprint, looking at our organic growth and who our key referral partners are um, and solving their problems, whether that be the person with disability themselves, the person supported by their family or decision makers, support coordinators or at that kind of LAC complex manner. Love it. Love it. <clears throat> so just to pick up on what you said there on one particular point, um, you talked about your top referral partners. When I, Whenever I do either my masterclasses or I do growth programs for people, what I do is I talk about the importance of outbound prospecting. And so I find that on average, most providers just rely on inbound leads. So what that means is that either referrals, your Google ads, you know, um, people going to your website, and they often, by the way, small providers, um, they often think that if they just build a website, where are my leads? They think that's enough, right? So you've got to sort of go beyond that and actually show your value yeah. proposition and all that stuff. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm not trying to make a joke about it. I just think it's a common pattern. Um, but um, the reason I'm mentioning all of this is that outbound prospecting is where you, you kind of take yourself off the roller coaster and you're consistent in building relationships. And to do a very quick analogy, I did a project for a national support coordination company and their goal was to bring on 40 new participants a month, um, which is great. Um, and, and what they do is they, they reference back to the fact that one, one support coordinator can do typically, if they're doing level two stuff, not level three, they can do somewhere between 20 to 40 participants in their total portfolio generally, right? And I mentioned that as a stat because I want all providers to be inspired by the simple idea that if you do an amazing job with just one support coordinator, the principle of that is that those 20 to 40 participants that they work with could then organically become referrals to you. So be be on the hunt. That, that's my message I want to give to people, you know? Uh, absolutely. We, um, we have a team of business development people that are local to yep. the markets we want to be working in and they actively uh, what we do is a bit of a divide and conquer mm-hmm. so our business development people have their list of people and they're more the national strategic bigger players um and then we have the the natural referral relationships with so mm-hmm. who's the nun at the um, acquired brain injury unit who we go and have coffee with and we're top of mind for them who's the special support coordinator who's got that caseload because she's great or he's great and everybody's going to them for the services so we we have a national um relationships with uh key players and that they're managed nationally so that's our sda partnerships and our health and hospital relationships 
Then we have our BDs who have that more strategic but professional B2B engagement. And then we have obviously uh, the local relationships that we cultivate through what we call our client experience teams, other people call service delivery to say, you know, go back often and tell people how great you are and what you've done because you are great and you did great things and people like joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, mm-hmm. don't share it um, mm-hmm. and do the complex stuff. And that's why we run the thing called a Next Door event, which I'm going up to in Cross Harbour next week. Mm-hmm. And I've just reached out to some of our key referral partners up there and said, tell me how we're doing, honestly. Like, tell me, come come have a chat with me. And, and one has come back with a, there's not too for improvement for us there. And another's okay. come back with absolutely glowing experience and huge recommendations, which I've shared right back to that team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is important to be present in local communities, to be actively talking to people um, and to be celebrating success and working mm-hmm. towards it. Mm. the sector needs a lot more of that these days it does it does i'm fascinated what crm do you use for sales and marketing uh pipe drive pipe drive yeah nice yeah yeah yeah. awesome very nice very nice glad i could answer that one (laughs) (laughs) put you on the spot there um pretty good we actively look at it to see what's working what's not working what's the return on investment all those boring things that i didn't study psychology to do but are incredibly important (laughs) absolutely no no it's it's fascinating (laughs) um so let me ask you this final question what do the next couple of years look like for the next group what have you got you know on your cards i'm really genuinely excited i think we have done a great job with new kicked of having a very can-do culture that is focused on clients everybody here knows why we are here and who's paying the bills that's the clients we support and everybody knows the key people that we need to all wrap around and lift up our support workers out there doing it so for us it's about we went through this operating model change we're seeing the signs that it is working it's about embedding that measuring it checking it's working and optimizing against it so uh and very much a focus on sustainable growth i am concerned about where the sector is at what i'm hearing in my colleagues and in annual reports and all the things that are happening and i just really want to be a safe and trusted pair of hands Mm. for the next couple of years so that we can all collectively get through this um because we need to so i'm i'm on a message of joy and kindness um Mm. That's where I think next will be will be continuing to deliver great, meaningful outcomes for people with disability, championing our support workers, um, and naturally growing as we go through that. Fantastic. Love it. Love it. Well, Jen Morgan from Next Group, it's been more than a pleasure to have a chat with you today. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I really do massively appreciate that. No problem, Chris. It's always, uh, always fun to talk about the good stuff. Absolutely, exactly. Well, listen, my name is Chris Hall uh, from Peak Provider. If you're interested in scaling your business, get in touch at peakprovider.com.au. And there's masterclasses and consulting objects there too. Jen, you have a great day and I'm sure we'll speak again. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Cheers, everyone.